Hey there, everyone. I hope the Easter Bunny was good to you this year. But if he wasn't, we have a sweet treat for you. It's another episode of Dark and Devious. Welcome back to Dark and Devious. As Christopher mentioned, it is uh, the season of the Easter Bunny. Um, (laughs) That sounds like a horror film. (laughs) That would be a great horror film. Season of the Easter Bunny. (laughs) Every year people post those those pictures of the... uh, like vintage pictures of children on the knees of the like the creepy old style Easter bunnies and oftentimes like the children are crying kind of just makes me like it would have to be that style yeah they're the old ones are terrifying oh yeah and I I um I like to look at vintage Halloween photos oh me too I love those like where kids were kids looked straight out of a horror movie mm-hmm like it's that classic just like pillow of your face with eye holes yeah <laughs> and i'm like that is terrifying mm-hmm. um well even though the bunny isn't the reason for the season it is <laughs> fun it's a very it fun aspect uh did you do anything for easter yes actually uh, my family did get together this was kind of our first major family get together um, you know, since people have started to start to get vaccinated in the family and whatnot. Um, so we decided this was worthwhile to get together. Uh, it's also my grandma's birthday. I believe it's the day that we're recording here, April 5th, is my, is my grandma's birthday. And she is 94 today. So we like celebrated both together, which is, yeah, because... Easter doesn't always fall this early. No, it's it's the first Sunday of April, I believe. Is it, I feel like it like it could be in March. It could be in April. Oh, you know, that's true. Yes, you're right. In, I don't know. It could be in September. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like there's some weird calculation that I have never bothered to look into on when Easter actually falls. I know all I all I honestly know is that it's the Sunday after Palm Sunday. And I don't know much other than that. Right. It's like it's it's a lunar thing. Is it a how many days between like of Lent? I don't know. Yeah. So I know some of our listeners right now are like, you two idiots. (laughs) <laughs> like uh, heathens how yes. do you not know right so i'm sure someone out there that knows us knows the answer so just yes. just shoot us a text you know yeah. <laughs> let us know uh, but yeah uh, and i actually for the first time in like gosh over 15 years looked for an easter egg it was really funny my aunt hid two Easter eggs in the backyard at my grandma's house. One for my brother, who's actually like three years older than me, and and then one for me. 
and I mean, because they both have the same thing inside. Um, but it's just really funny. Here we are, these 30 year old men, you know, 37 year old men looking around the backyard for some Easter eggs. <laughs> and it's funny, but I found it. It was it was worth it. Um, there was some cash inside. So I was very pleased to find that. Nice. I know that my brother's in-laws do like an adult Easter egg hunt um, where there's like a little bit of money in all the eggs, but there's a golden egg. And in the golden egg, there's a hundred dollars. So sweet. I am so down. I'm super down for that. Yeah. Normalize adult Easter egg hunting. <laughs> Normalize adult a lot of things to be yeah. honest like there's so many childhood things that I think I would legitimately still enjoy but it just seems so taboo for adults to be doing it right I I'd be so down for I would you know what I would go on an easter egg hunt at any time of year be like okay sure middle of winter hide some eggs for me it's fun yeah it's legit like that. fun <laughs> I imagine it just like a like a training program for Easter where you're, where you're like oh I'm gonna like I'm gonna search out all these eggs so I'll be ready for the real thing <laughs> yes that would be that would be fun um well today is a little bit different on dark and devious um this is our first ever morning recording right i know i am i i've never i've never had to set an alarm for our recordings <laughs> right um yeah we're usually like a, a afternoon sometimes even later recording or late, but mid after, or mid or late morning uh yeah yeah but it's a beautiful sunny day it's gonna be in the 80s so which is bonkers yeah 82 degrees in april in minnesota I mean, I am not at all complaining. I spent I spent the whole weekend outside. It was just gorgeous. And and I hope to enjoy it today. <laughs> or at least a little bit. I know yeah. you have an appointment that you're not super jazzed about. <laughs> no, I'm not. But it is what it is. Such is life. Um, well... We don't have much to say uh, in our banter this morning, really. Um, there's not much housekeeping or news news on our end. Yeah. Um, and just for time's sake, we do need to keep this a little, little bit tighter of an episode. So I uh, just want to remind everyone that we do have our social media accounts on Facebook and Instagram, Dark and Devious Podcast, and then our Gmail account, Dark and Devious podcast at gmail.com so check us out like and follow rate and review us on whatever you're listening to it really does help i know we say that every episode but truly the more the more ratings that we get and the more reviews that we get um it it makes us more visible uh so so yeah will appear more popular, which means we'll grow our audience, which means you guys will get to see those live shows that we were talking about <laughs> last week. Hopefully someday. Mm -hmm. Also, you know what is so cool? Right before we started recording, I was just checking Facebook and I saw 
somebody had given a great suggestion. They had really liked the the Osage Indian episode that we did last. Yeah, that was last week, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they had suggested looking into the Tulsa race riots, which I know has been kind of been like brought back into the, um, um, what am I trying to say? The light? Yes, it's been brought back into the light um, after being kind of a, a hidden piece of history for so long. And I think that's a super cool idea. And I really want to look into that. Uh, possibly for a future episode um, so yeah I love I love that that's a I think that's the first time we've gotten an, an episode idea from a listener so keep mm-hmm. them coming I I because uh, also it'll be fun to hear what people want to hear about exactly that's that's why I'm, I'm always asking like if you have ideas yeah. <clears throat> send us an email or shoot us a message on one of our socials yeah um, I've gotten a few ideas um from from family actually um but yeah as far as just like a listener out there that isn't in my close close network of folks um I haven't I haven't got it so yeah start sending them over I'd love to hear what you want yes all right well is it time to dig into the story it is we are gonna start our day by getting depressed (laughs) right after this message. So, the horrifying case of the Hinterkaifeck murders took place in 1920s Germany. It's the chilling true story of the ghastly and brutal murder of an entire family. Hinterkaifeck was the name of a farm near the German towns of Schrobenhausen and Ingolstadt. It was occupied by 63-year-old Andreas Gruber, and his family. His family consisted of his 72-year-old wife, Kazelia, their 35-year-old daughter, Victoria Gabriel, who was a widow, Victoria's children, 7-year-old Kazia, named after her grandmother, and 2-year-old Joseph. Um, It might be Joseph, though. It's with a J. So I, think, either... I think a lot of times in German, uh, the J's make a Y sound. I That's what say. I thought too. Kind of like do- all the W's have make a V sound. Okay, so we're going to go with Yosef. I think let's, let's do it. Sure. I'm probably correct. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so two-year-old Yosef. <clears throat> also living in the house was a maid named Maria... Baumgartner. Uh, She had just started working for the family on March 31st. Locally, Andreas Gruber was somewhat an unpopular figure. He was seen as an ill-tempered and quarrelsome person. The opinion of him as time went on only worsened. Through the years, rumors swirled around the area that Andreas had a sexual relationship with his daughter, Victoria. Oh my. And, what, and how old was his daughter again? Um, so she was 35. Okay, so this is a huge age difference. Too. Yeah, he was 63, so about double, roughly. So to substantiate the rumors in 1915, Andres Gruber was sentenced to a year imprisonment 
for the crime of incest. Oh, crazy. So, like, they had a trial, I assume, and... Mm -hmm. I yeah, don't know so how you prove that, and I I don't think I would want to be on that jury for that trial. That does not sound like a fun one. Yeah, um, and it gets. It, I'll get into it. There's some more details that kind of substantiate this, but also details Ooh. that could prove it wrong at the same time. So it really is kind of like whatever opinion you have on the matter. So in 1915, when Andres was sentenced for that year of imprisonment. Uh, Victoria was also sentenced, but only for a month of the same offense, uh, with the rationale that he's the one who was forcing the relationship to happen. Ah, uh, I see. Yes. So it was also claimed that as the result of their incestuous affair, that Andreas was the actual father of his own grandchild, Yosef. Okay, that's that would be that'd mm -hmm. be crazy. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, it's happened, unfortunately. That's when the, the family tree would start to get, like, a little bit of a knot in it. Yeah. There's, you know, some little, some little stubs on the branch that don't fully yeah. go out. Yeah. So even though this rumor spread, a neighbor, Lawrence Schlittenbauer, was named on the child's birth certificate. This was mainly down to Lorenz himself. Several times he claimed he wasn't the father and that the child was Andreas's. This led to Andreas threatening Schlittenbauer with legal action. Man, they really needed Maury back then. <laughs> right? I mean, if they could just go on on a Wednesday afternoon and get a paternity yeah. test... Honestly, this would be great television. It would. It's very salacious. <laughs> so the legal threat seemed to not work as Lauren Schlittenbauer took the step of reporting the crime. After being reported, Andreas and Victoria again faced persecution for the offense of incest in 1919. However, they were both acquitted in 1920. Strangely, this was after Lorenz took back his claims about the paternity of Yosef. He now said he was the child's father. It has been claimed over the years this happened after Victoria agreed to pay off Lorenz and cover his maintenance cost for the child without her father's knowledge. Another rumor also suggested she promised to marry Lorenz if the charges were dropped. Okay, so that's kind of the background of this family. Um, I do want to highlight and point out that the family weren't really liked nor disliked in the community. Um, they had a very, very large farm, and they provided a lot of food to, like, the local markets. They provided a lot of uh, produce as well as meat and milk and cheeses. So the town kind of really relied on this family. Um, but at the same time, they were a little like standoffish as well. Uh, the family was a little bit mysterious. They mainly kept to themselves. They rarely left the farm unless it was for the children to go to school or to attend um, church every Sunday. So they didn't really have a whole lot of friends. 
but they didn't really have a whole lot of enemies either. Does that make sense? That that yes, that does. That it it just seems like odd behavior because it seems like the only thing to do back at this period of time would to do like social gatherings just make prevent yourself from going absolutely insane like you want to have friends that you could I don't know sit next to in church <laughs> yeah but I mean other than this possible relationship between Victoria and Lorenz all the relationships were like strictly business it was all about the farm it was all about you know, payments and who owed what and, you know, who provided what. So they're, they're kind of shut-ins. Hmm. Well, and I, I imagine like running such a, a big farm would, would take up a lot of your time, but also it's like you're human beings. You need some, you need some outlet for entertainment and, uh, like I, you, how you can't only run your life around the farm right um but they did so also i think a really good episode name for this episode could be strictly business i <laughs> found it really like we'll see how the rest of this plays out but strictly business that's that's up there I, it's in the, in the back of my head for potential episode names it is potential Although I do like the ring of Hinterkaifeck. Oh, yes. It's just a fun word. Hinterkaifeck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so that's the background of the family. And we are now in 1922. And it's April 1st. Ooh, okay, so... You were you weren't kidding when you were talking about like down to the day almost. Yeah, it is ninety nine years to the date, and like four days away. So on April first, nineteen twenty two, Kazelia, uh, the grandchild, failed to attend school. Then the following day, none of the family members attended church, which was something they did every week. So that, that definitely stood out. They did not miss church. By April 3rd, little Kazelia had once again missed school. That same day, the postman had noticed that the Gruber's mailbox still contained letters from his previous visits. He also didn't see anyone on the property or see any lights or movement within the home, which he said he always saw. Boy, you know that it's bad when those Amazon packages start piling up at the front door. I know. There's definitely something wrong. I mean, the Hinterkaifeck farm, I'm sure like they had their they had their command strip packages and you know old Kazelia's sewing Amazon packages just sitting out there collecting dust. New milking buckets, you mm -hmm. know, everything that would have been ordered. <laughs> um, so it's it's noted to be very, very odd that uh, there was no movement on the farm because, as I stated, they didn't leave the farm other than school and church. And, like, there was always movement. Like, they were always tending to the cattle, tending to the crops, you know, butchering animals 
the women were always out like washing and hanging sheets. So it was, it was definitely noticeable that it was empty. Despite that it being empty and still and Kazelia missing from school, them not attending church, several neighbors had seen smoke coming from the chimney during those days. Hmm. So it was, it was questionable, but it wasn't a great deal of concern due to the fact that they were, you know, known to be a bit reclusive. On April 4th, Albert Hoffner, a mechanic, had a scheduled to work on a feeding machine at the farm. He was there for several hours and did not see a single person. Did he actually, did he work on the machine and just didn't think it was weird? Um, so he thought it was weird, but he was there to do a job and he wanted to get paid. So he went about his business. Oh, well, I guess I'll just go and work on this machine and not even bother to talk to anyone. I need my paycheck for my wife. <laughs> your, your, your guy sounds more Swedish. <laughs> yeah, that's because... <laughs> I mean, you heard my British accent last week. I'm, I'm awful. Um, so when Albert arrived, he tried to get the attention of the family, but all he could see or hear was the family dog barking. Upon completion of the job, he did the same again, but once more, he got no answer. Albert decided to tell a neighbor he hadn't seen the family but had completed the job. Like he wanted to let someone know that the job was done. So that way, if, you know, old man um, Grubner was like, that mechanic never showed up. He's yeah. like, yo, I was there. I did the work. Actually, you guys were the ones who didn't show up. <laughs> so later that day, several neighbors made the decision to visit the farm to check that everything was okay. Upon their arrival, they found the doors to like all the buildings, the house, the sheds, the barns, they were all locked. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So just out of curiosity, because these people had been missing for five days now, um, they decided to go ahead and break in because they were, they were concerned. When they did, they made a disturbing discovery. The dog did it. And he had eaten all their cookies. <laughs> so they started in the barn because it was the easiest and they didn't want to cause a whole lot of damage to the house itself. In the barn, they found the bodies of Andreas, his wife, Cazelia, and his daughter, Victoria, all stacked upon each other in a pile. Upon further inspection, they also found little Cazelia hidden under some straw in the barn. She was also dead. As they made their way into the farmhouse, they discovered the two further victims, the maid Maria and two-year-old Yosef. The authorities were notified, but unfortunately, by the time police arrived from Munich, the crime scene had been severely contaminated. Dozens of prying and curious locals had walked all over the scene, moved objects, touched the bodies, and it said that even some were making snacks in the kitchen. 
That is wild. Like, oh, well, I mean, I guess they, why let this perfectly good food go to waste? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, if you're going at it from that angle, sure. I'm all about, you know, reducing food scarcity in the world. <laughs> um, but it does, it does floor me whenever I hear about these old cases, even as late into like the early 1990s, where people just walked everywhere. Like they touched everything. They, they got new hairs all over the crime scene. They got new like saliva, fingerprints. They're licking the crime scene. Yeah, pretty much. But it is, uh, it is one of those things that people, I mean, I don't know if it's just a curiosity thing or because I'm sure in a town like this that a big story like this doesn't normally happen. And then, and it, it's kind of like, you know, people will take like souvenirs and stuff or how yes. like, or from like public executions and stuff back then people used to like snag little pieces of cloth and stuff from the 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 person who's being executed is it's kind of like that, that same morbid curiosity and like like I I bet somebody probably was like oh let me steal something from the crime scene as a souvenir for this but it's like every little thing you take makes it harder to solve this case because you'd never know what piece of evidence is going to be the piece of evidence that will solve the whole case exactly or even just by rummaging around a crime scene if like there's people's hairs are falling out mm -hmm. then it's like they have so many more people to look at rather than just the the people that were actually involved right you know? and, all, and especially this time I mean uh in the last episode we were talking about tire tracks uh and and how they weren't preserved and that could have been a vital piece of evidence in identifying the perpetrators uh and uh same thing with like footprints I mean footprints don't last very long uh so if you've got a bunch of people tromping through then all of their footprints are gonna stomp out the the ones that might be the one caused by the person who committed the murder exactly um so in today's ted talk um <laughs> just stay out of crime scenes yeah. <laughs> let people do the work they need to do and if you do discover one or touch as few things as possible and certainly don't rummage in the kitchen for a snack <laughs> right dr johann baptist almuller the court physician carried out the autopsies on all six victims he concluded that they had been murdered somewhere between the evening of march 31st and early morning april 1st oh and side note uh the maid um this is like really sad. Um, her first day was March 31st. Oh, gosh. And it said that her suitcase wasn't even unpacked. Oh, that's so sad. Look, talk about 
a bad first day at work. <laughs> I mean, this one takes the cake. Yeah. All the victims had been killed after being bludgeoned with a pickaxe or a similar object. Uh, they had been struck several times in the skull, all except young Yosef, who received just one single blow. Traumatically, his findings also revealed that seven-year-old Kazelia remained alive for several hours after being bludgeoned. Oh, no. I and, mean, if, if you're going to be bludgeoned to death, you want it to just be like one and done. Like, mm-hmm. don't let me linger and suffer for hours. I mean, they the killer probably assumed she was dead. Yeah. Um, But, and even more like, like uh, morbid fact about young Kazelia is that while she laid alive after the attack, um, she had pulled several clumps of her own hair from her head. Whoa, that's brutal. Yeah, so she was probably like, maybe trying to like stop the pain from the blows. Maybe she was, you know, like so scared that she was just, you know, kind of in in a mental state where that's what her reaction was to do. I, I could also see it being like, uh, I mean, especially a blow to the head maybe affected her mental state. Yeah. Yep. And that, yeah, that it's one of those things where like all of a sudden now, like I'm compulsively pulling my hair out. Ugh, but, oof. The doctor took the step of removing all six victims' heads for further examination. He sent them away to be studied in Munich. At the time, this was believed to be the best source of evidence. No further information was forthcoming from the examination of their heads. Um, And for reasons that I couldn't find, the heads weren't returned to the bodies ever. That's really bizarre. It's like, we, you know, it's just a lot cheaper to ship these with just the heads, you know, don't, don't, we don't need those pesky bodies. Right. Um, I mean, you'll, you'll learn that this case is unsolved. Uh, Spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) So part of me thinks that maybe they didn't return them just because they never found the answers. So they're always like clinging on to maybe they can learn something from those skulls like at a later date, just like how before DNA testing came in, they -hmm. still took blood samples because they were like, maybe we can learn later from this. Yeah. So that's my theory. Yeah. Um, Also, I can just imagine that they like, I just imagine this place being haunted as hell because it's like, not okay, not only were these people murdered, but also now it's like, where is my head? Like, I won't be at rest until you put my head with my body. Right. And I, I've had that same thought. I'm like, these poor people, I feel like being buried without your head. Like, I feel like your soul can't rest. Right. I, I know if I wasn't uh, buried intact, I would be pissed <laughs> <laughs> if I had a say in it. Yeah. Uh, and to add more insult to injury, uh, their heads will never, ever be reunited because during World War II, 
uh, they were destroyed in an air raid on the Court of Justice building. Oh, man. So we can't, because I was thinking like, oh, wouldn't that be cool to use like modern technology to find yeah, something. New, yeah, like look for new, you know, because they're always doing like imaging or something and they're like, oh, that that's the, uh, you know, that's the, the key to solving the mystery. And man, now we don't get to do that. Mm-hmm. I know. So police hypothesized that the victims in the barn, uh, so old Cazelia, old man Gruber, and Victoria, had all been lured there and killed one by one, um, except for young Cazelia, which they, they believe may have been taken there. They then believe after the barn murders, the killer made their way into the farmhouse to complete their terrible act by murdering the housemaid and Yosef. At first, the police surmise that the motive behind the horrific killings was robbery. This, however, was soon decided not to be the case, as further searches throughout the property, police found quite a large sum of money, valuables, such as jewelries and family heirlooms. Yeah, that doesn't even make sense, because like, why would you lure like why would you lure people to be murdered one by one when you could maybe get away with just killing one person grab the loot and go like that's I feel like they're they always assume like well maybe it was robbery like no no matter what the evidence says and as like it's an easy excuse Mm -hmm, it is um, but I, I do understand why they they chose that as the first one, just because um, the family was pretty well off. Mm-hmm. Um, they, like I said, they were the, like, the sole providers for the neighboring towns. So they were making a lot of money. What was more chilling was that authorities found evidence which led them to believe that the killer had remained at the scene for several days after the murders. The killer seemingly fed the animals and milked the cows. So remember how like the neighbors said that they saw smoke coming from the house? Right. Out of the chimney. So they believe that the killer stayed. That is spooky. You just think of the guy who who went to fix the machinery that like what if the killer was still hanging out there lurking? I mean, it's very well possible. Ooh. If if that mechanic had like gone into the house, you know, would he have been also killed? Who knows? So one has to ask themselves, was the, was the farm taken care of after uh, the killing had happened? Was this done because the murder would benefit financially from the murders? So it made sense to keep the livestock alive? It's possible. Maybe they, they're like, oh, I just hate humans so much, but I love animals. Yeah, good old Bessie the cow. I yeah, it's like, oh, I don't want anything bad to happen to her. Although if it's Germany, it, she would probably be named Brunhilde or something. something yeah, yeah, that's more fitting. Yeah. So it wasn't just after the murders that police discovered something strange had occurred. 
Further investigations revealed several interesting events leading up to the murders. Andreas had told neighbors about hearing footsteps in his attic, but every time he went up to look, he could find nothing there. He also said that he had found a newspaper from a town, like a neighboring town that the family never went to on the farm's property. So that made no sense how it got there. And I assume they didn't deliver. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Um, He also stated that um, either a key or keys uh, belonging to him had vanished and he couldn't find them. It sounds a little bit like gremlins were responsible. (laughs) Yeah, they do like to steal things. Yeah, especially keys. Mm Mm-hmm. Perhaps the strangest story he told his neighbor was that he found some footprints in the snow leading from the forest up to his home. They led to the back door. Stranger still, there were no footsteps going away from the home. Oh, that is some spooky stuff. Right? And you hear footsteps in your attic after you find these footprints that I'm assuming he asked the rest of the family, like, are these yours? Um, Mm -hmm. Which, you know, if it was, I think in that day, um, you know, even farm women still wore some sort of heel. So it'd be noticeably not theirs. And his grandkids have small feet. So if if they're not his, who are they? Yeah, it would be pretty easy to eliminate the other family members from suspicion there. Mm-hmm. So police quickly began uh, their investigations and more than 100 suspects were questioned by Inspector Ryan Gruber and his team. The suspects included a mixture of both locals and people that were just traveling through the area. All there, there was one interesting omission. Somehow, the mechanic who worked on the farm the day that the bodies were discovered wasn't interviewed until 1933. What? 11 years later. That's a huge omission. I know. Whereas, like, oh, yeah, they interviewed, like, Gunther, who was just, like, passing through town that day, but, like, not the guy who actually went to the farm. And was there by himself for hours. Mm Mm-hmm. So to this day, it's unclear why that was. And despite the high amount of suspects spoken to, no one was charged with committing the atrocities. Almost 30 years after the Hinterkaifeck murders, it seemed that the case may actually be solved. A woman named Presentia Meyer told priest Anton Hauber on her deathbed that her two brothers had been responsible for the grisly slaughter that took place on the Hinterkaifeck farm. The men in question were Adolf and Anton Gump. Detective General George Reingruber had made Adolf a potential suspect in 1922. He was suspected of taking part in the killing of nine peasants with three other men, However, he was never arrested for the Hinterkaifeck murders. 
By the time he was named by his sister as a suspect, Adolf himself had passed away. Oh, so you don't get a chance to confront him. Right. Um, so prosecutor Andreas Pop detained his brother Anton based on the evidence given by his sister. Anton was released shortly after as they had little to hold him. Following several years of investigation, Anton was cleared of any involvement in the murders due to a complete lack of evidence. Investigators also discovered that his sister, who said that he and Adolf had done it, had been prone to dementia and concocted fantical stories. Oh, man, I really wanted her to be like the one telling the truth finally and have it be like this big to do. And like, I don't know, we always like having a final uh, conclusion to stories like this, but right. it's not so neat, not so tidy. And, you know, not to say that, I mean, someone with dementia can definitely tell a true story. Oh, yeah, for sure. So it's still, you know, it's still a question. Yeah. So what about suspects since? Several theories have arisen and come up over the years. Um, there's like many, many theories. So I'm just going to go over what I would say are the main ones and the ones that get brought up when talking about the Hinterkaifeck murders. Let's start with the most far-fetched. This theory is that Victoria's husband, Carl Gabriel, committed the murders. Now remember, Victoria was a widow. The fact that Carl was killed in 1914 during World War I, eight years before the murders, would make it highly unlikely that he could have committed the murders. However, it's not as quite straightforward as that. Carl Gabriel was killed on the Western Front during World War I. According to several stories, though, his body was never found, and it's believed that he may have faked his death to get out of uh, the relationship with Victoria. Boy, that uh, that is a real insult to you uh, it, when someone would rather fake their own death than continue <laughs> being in a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. Boy, that uh, that must have been a rough, a rough relationship. <laughs> I I don't think all was well in the marriage bed. Also, the thing that's so cool about this period of time is that, like, yeah, people could fake their death all the time. You, you could just disappear or move somewhere else. No one's going to ask any questions about who you were before. You, you just tell people that you're somebody and they'll just believe you. Right. And in all honesty, if you're going to fake your own death, you might as well do it while you're deployed during a very hostile war. Because yeah, I mean, no I'm one's sure. going to question that. Yeah, I got to do is just slip away. Um, so the theory goes that Carl had survived and wasn't killed. But after hearing that his wife had a child with her own father, he decided to take his revenge in the most horrific way possible. But, I mean, me personally, so sure, you're mad at 
your wife, you're mad at your father-in-law, but why would you kill your legitimate daughter? Yeah. And her grandmother who had no control of the situation. Yeah, that one definitely does sound the most far-fetched. And and also like if you if things were so bad in the marriage, like why would you bother coming back? Right. And also risk someone recognizing you. Exactly. Because I'm sure somebody in town would have would have at least been able to recognize him if he was passing through. It it seems very uh, very supernatural horror. Mm-hmm. It is. So another problem with that theory is that after digging around some German sites, um, there were actual statements that several soldiers uh, did in fact to claim to witness Carl's death when he stood on a mine. Ooh, and that would also explain the no body because when you step on a mine, you are blown to bits. Yeah, there's not much left. Yeah. Um, another interesting theory based on Carl is that the murders were committed by a soldier from his unit. Perhaps Carl had told a story about his wife and how she was quite well off financially. A soldier could then take advantage of the bit of knowledge at the end of his service. The big problem with this theory is the fact that the killings did not seem to be the result of a robbery. Right. So maybe the soldier just wanted revenge for his dead friend against the family. Um, so either way, Carl's involvement, um, they're interesting, but unlikely. Yeah. Um, the second theory is that the family was murdered by one of the extreme right or left-wing political groups operating in Germany during the time. For over a decade after the end of World War I, the communists and Nazis engaged in acts that led to a fair amount of fighting, bloodshed, and the killings of innocent people. Due to its location, it is speculated that the farm may have been used as an arms repository, hideout, or meeting place for one of the militia groups. The theory implies that the murders were the result of reprisals from a rival group. So basically, gang wars I mean, could be responsible. Yeah, pretty much. They're saying, you know, that Andreas's. Um, family was involved in either the the far right or the far left and as a result of their involvement uh they were they were murdered which i'm sure happened Mm -hmm. you know that time was horrific um so it's not quite as far-fetched as the husband theory um the family certainly were like reclusive from the rest of the community. Um, so it would be possible for them to hold meetings. Um, and the location of the farm also makes it possible. It's between two, two bigger towns. So people could come from both directions. Um, however, there just was no evidence linking Andreas, uh, his wife, Kazelia or Victoria, to any such political group. The final theory, and the most likely in my own opinion, 
is that Lawrence Schlittenbauer, remember him, the one that was maybe the father of young Yosef, mm -hmm. has been suggested by several to be the killer. So as noted, he was the questionable father of Yosef, and he certainly seemed to have genuine feelings for Victoria. At one point, it is said he wished to marry her, but Victoria's father, Andreas, made it very clear that he would never allow that to happen. It's also known that Lorenz was the person that reported the incest between Andreas and Victoria in 1919. Stories emerged over the years that days before the murders, Lorenz was told by Victoria that she planned to sue him for money that, she, that he owed her for Yosef's care. It is said he was furious about this. Since he claimed at times the child was not even his, why should he have to pay for his needs? He also felt Victoria was greedy. As noted, she was very well financially off and much, much better off than Lorenz. Lorenz was one of the neighbors that were the first to find the deceased in the barn. When the victims were discovered, they were stacked on top of each other, as previously mentioned. And Lorenz had no problem just picking them up and moving them one by one. Lorenz, at this point, went directly to the bodies. When he was asked why he was touching the bodies, he said he was looking for his son, the son he had many times claimed wasn't his. When it was time to look inside the house, Lorenz went directly to where both young Yosef's and the housemaid's bodies were. He just like made a beeline for them. That's, that is very suspicious. And also, I feel like as much as we want these crimes to have some sort of, maybe like a, like a conspiracy, kind of like the whole political group theory. I think the most obvious suspects are usually the ones who are guilty in some in some case in these early cases like this. You know, where a lot of times we're like, oh, like maybe there's some weird, like political or like supernatural element. It's like, no, it's probably the person you think it is, honestly. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think it's like 90% of murders happen from someone you know. And it's, and it's usually in those cases, a family member. Mm -hmm. And like, he's kind of family. It's questionable, but he kind of is. And he has a relationship with the family. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, he's, he's a suspicious fellow. Right. And it, a lot of those things that, you know, like returning to the scene of the crime, like those kind of cliched things that uh, that they always say that killers do. You know, he returned to the scene of the crime. He uh, he seemed to have knowledge of where the bodies were before even entering the building. Mm -hmm. That is, that is that those are uh, that's little bits of evidence there. Honestly, yeah, for sure. So oddly enough, immediately after the murders, Lorenz's tune had gone from spreading rumors to claiming that he was not the child of, or he was not the father of Yosef, to that he in fact was Yosef's father. Was this 
because he believed he may be a beneficiary due to Yosef's death and inherit the family's fortune. That's the first thing that came to my mind. Mm-hmm. Also worth adding is that after the deaths, Lorenz asked investigators if he would get back the money he had paid as child support. Which that is, is an- such a skeezy thing to ask. It's like this whole family just got murdered. And you're like, oh, by the way, uh, is there maybe some way I could get some of my money back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I mean, you're, you're, now you're saying is your child has just yeah. been brutally murdered and you just want your money. Yeah, it's, that is like the skeeziest thing to even bring up in this amidst this investigation. Mm-hmm. So Lorenz was seen as a suspect at the time, but there was no hard evidence against him, just a lot of speculation. It was often rumored by people in the area that he was the killer, including by one of the men he initially discovered the bodies with, which I, I definitely would if I saw him just moving the love of his life's body like she's a piece of me and yeah and knowing exactly where fact, to find your dead son yeah in fact they're like the fact that he could easily lift all the bodies too is suspicious i mean like whoever committed this murder had to be very strong and yeah and uh you think also they would have to be somebody who the family was familiar with because it sounded like they were all lured to the barn so it, it couldn't have, it seems like it it couldn't have been a stranger. And obviously he was known to the whole family. Right. So it sounds like it wouldn't have been strange for him to maybe like call for somebody from the barn or I don't know. I'm sure that there's some sort of situation it could be like, oh, hey, let's, we're walking, we're talking, I'm going to bring you to the barn and then take yeah. you out. I mean, that's, that's very well possible. Like, Maybe he had told Andres he would help him do something with the cattle. So yeah. they go out to the barn. He kills Andres. He goes back and gets um, old lady Kazelia and says, hey, Andres says we need a- another hand. Can you come out here? And they go back to the barn again. And then out of curiosity, like she's like, where are my parents at? What's taking so long? Victoria goes out there. I mean, it's just... I can see yeah, how it would play out. Yeah, it's not hard to imagine. It seems very, very possible. So nine years later in 1931, uh, Lorenz was again interviewed as a suspect. Again, no charges were made. Hmm. And in a statement that same year, Lorenz was back again to his stance of not knowing who the father of Yosef was. I mean, it's like, well, I'm not going to benefit financially from it. So why should I claim him? Exactly. He's like, I didn't get my money in the past nine years. I don't see it coming for me anytime soon. So that kid isn't mine. That's really bizarre. And it leaves bad taste in my mouth. Just thinking about him, like claiming him, then not claiming him, claiming him, then not claiming him. Mm hmm. Like, this is a human child. And, and and the claiming and not claiming went on before the murders as well. So yeah. it almost seems like at times where Lorenz could benefit from being Yosef's father, he, 
he like yeah that i love that son of mine but when he wasn't gonna get anything out of it other than a mouth to feed he wanted nothing to do with him sounds like a real deadbeat parent Mm -hmm. in the literal sense i think yeah i don't don't care much for this fellow no so in 2017 a group of students at the police academy in munich looked into the case. The entire group all came away believing that the same suspect was responsible. The academy did not report any names in their uh, in the reports about it. Oh, come on. Out of respect for living relatives. All right, I guess. Yeah, so, but people um, who have translated it in the English translations that I could find uh, say it's quite clear that Lorenz is the man that they are talking about, just given details on like relationships to the family and motives. Um, so it's it's widely believed that it was Lorenz who committed the murders. It's just because there is no hard evidence and because everyone involved in the case is long gone, they can't definitely say that. Uh, this is one of those times where you just are hoping for like a lost diary entry or some sort of like written confession somewhere just to kind of put the whole story to rest. But I kind of doubt that something like that is out there. And even if there was, after so much time has passed, it could have been lost or destroyed. Right. I mean, World War II happened and yeah. all of Europe got destroyed. So. Yeah. The tragic truth is that this case will most likely never be 100% solved and closed. It is almost a century old and very little evidence survived the war. As in most unsolved cases, the Hinterkaifeck murders are just as likely to be committed by someone that has never been brought to any attention as they are by someone mentioned in one of the many theories. And that is the suspicious tale of the Hinterkaifeck murders. That was a good one. I I do love a good like cold case, kind of like something that has a very mysterious element to it like that. Yeah, and that was one, I feel like I maybe seen an article about this one before somewhere, but I didn't know the in-depth details. Uh, Yeah, um, there's another um, old unsolved family massacre that I'm going to cover at some point. Um, It took place in the U.S., like in the prairies, like I think like 1800s maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I've heard of this one too. Again, another vaguely uh, recognizable case, you know. Does it have a raisin cake? Because there's a raisin (laughs) cake that's highly involved in this case. Okay, so this is uh, a little little taste test, maybe. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I just want to cite my sources for the Hinterkaifeck tale. there was the gruesome tale of the unsolved Hinterkaifeck murders, 
written by Katie Serena. There was the article Murder on the Farm, author unknown, but found on unsolvedcasebook.com. And there was Case File Podcast episode, uh, and it was episode number 124. Um, and I'm going to be posting uh, some photos of the farm itself. Um, and there are some photos of the crime scenes. Uh, it's pretty PG, but if you don't like to see that kind of stuff, maybe don't look at it. But if you do, check us out on Facebook or Instagram or both at Dark and Devious Podcast. All right. Well, that was a nice, tight episode. Very, very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we're on the right track for who is responsible, but it just really sucks that the person responsible is never going to be like put on trial or anything. I mean, there's like a little bit of satisfaction in solving the case, but, you know, if nobody is physically held responsible for the murders, it's always kind of a bummer that can't follow through. Right. And because there was no trial and no hard evidence, I do want to say, although I believe I know who did it, I'm not going to say that this, this person is 100%. Right. So that our know. suspicions are strong, but that's all they can really be as suspicions. Exactly. All right. Well, um, thank you for listening. Uh, let us know if we were wrong in any of my pronunciations. <laughs> I think I did okay. I think you did all right. Although I, I, I can't imagine why the name Kazelia ever went out of fashion. I don't know. Why did it go out of fashion is my question. <laughs> it's a great drag name. Yeah, well, welcome to the stage, Kazelia. It, it has a nice ring. It has a nice ring to it. It's a definitely a name that you could go by just the one name. <laughs> yes, it's a one-namer. Yeah. All right, everyone. Well, until next time. Bye. Bye.